Everybody good today? Everybody good? Yeah, good. Good to see you guys. Welcome. My name is Tim Harris, pastor at Woodburn Baptist Church. Open your Bibles to 1 Kings, Old Testament book of 1 Kings chapter 18. We are now in the second message of a series entitled Altars. Last week I gave you a definition of altar. What did I say? Do you remember? What is an altar? An altar is a place where what? Sacrifices are made. An altar is a place of worship, a table perhaps, or a, 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 a stone um, construction where typically a sacrifice is made in the Old Testament. So in this series, we're sort of going to some of those Old Testament altar moments, those passages where God's people are gathered at an altar to try to learn what it means for us to live a sacrifice life. Romans chapter 12 verse 2 says that we are living sacrifices. So trying to bring some of these things together between now and Easter and so uh, this, is, this is where we started last week. An altar is a place where sacrifices are made. As we mentioned last week, and as you know from your Western civilization course at Western or uh, any kind of history or knowledge of, of uh, the, the human family, uh, from ancient cultures, I mean, as far back as we know, people have built altars. Now, not always to the one true God, of course. After the fall, uh, the human family was separated from God, our, our maker. And so uh, we continue to be haunted by this God in whose image we are made, but in, in many instances not knowing his name, not knowing, uh, not having a very full revelation of who he is. And, and so uh, humans have made altars. They've made altars to other gods, to false gods, to imaginary gods. And, and in all of these instances, there was this sense that there's this God whose name we don't know, a, a God with whom there's a broken relationship. Very often, these ancient civilizations, the worship is based on fear, the idea that there is a God who is offended, and somehow we can offer a sacrifice that will mend that relationship, that will restore that relationship. Now, as you know, however, the, the offering of salvation, the sacrifice that purchases our salvation, the, the, the final offering that repairs that relationship, it doesn't come from our side of the altar, that sacrifice that purchases our salvation is the sacrifice that God himself gives on the altar, which is at Calvary. And that's the Easter story, and I'm getting ahead of myself. But understand, the offering of salvation, it doesn't come from our side of the altar. It's what God gives himself uh, and, and purchases our salvation. So the question for us becomes, this God who has everything, this God who is everything, this God who's already paid the full price to restore us into relationship with him, what can we give him? As we approach the altar of worship today and every day of our lives, what must we bring him? This is a question that hangs over this sermon today. What do we bring him? What sacrifice, what offering can we give the God who already has everything? Uh, and with that, let's go to 1 Kings chapter 18. This is one of my favorite altar moments. This is Elijah at Mount Carmel. Not Carmel, Carmel, uh, Mount Carmel. Elijah is confronting here the prophets of Baal. Last week we talked about the, uh, the, the Canaanite fertility god Baal who was a part of ancient culture. Uh, a real temptation to the people of God. They wanted to have it both ways. They wanted to claim relationship with the God who had brought them out of slavery in Egypt. But they also wanted to have Baal in their back pocket for all their fertility needs, for the crops, and for the multiplication of the herd. So as we said last week, they wanted to have it both ways. But at 1 Kings chapter 18, it is time to make a decision. And Elijah calls the people to decision. This is good. Uh, it's a great story. I'm going to pick up in the middle at verse 20. 1 Kings chapter 18, 
verse 20. So Ahab summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel. Then Elijah stood in front of them and said, How much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. Then Elijah told them, I am the only prophet of the Lord who is left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Now, bring two bulls. The prophets of Baal may choose whichever one they wish and cut into pieces and lay it on the wood of their altar, but without setting fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood on the altar, but not set fire to it. Then call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God. And all the people agreed. Y'all understand the showdown here? This is awesome. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, You go first, for there are many of you. Choose one of the bulls and prepare it and call on the name of your God, but do not set fire to the wood. So they prepared one of the bulls and placed it on the altar. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noontime, shouting, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no reply of any kind. Then they danced hobbling around the altar they had made. And about noontime, Elijah began mocking them. Surely you'll have to shout louder, he scoffed. For surely he's a God. Perhaps he's daydreaming or he's relieving himself. Or maybe he's away on a trip or is asleep and needs to be awakened. So they shouted louder. Following their normal custom, they cut themselves with knives and swords until the blood gushed out. They raved all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice, but still, there was no sound, no reply, no response. Elijah called to the people, come over here. They all crowded around him as he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. He took 12 stones, one to represent each of the tribes of Israel, and he used the stones to rebuild the altar in the name of the Lord. Then he dug a trench around the altar large enough to hold about three gallons. He piled wood on the altar, cut the bull into pieces, and laid the pieces on the wood. Then he said, fill four large jars with water and pour the water over the offering and the wood. Okay, stop. Y'all know anything at all about fire building? Is this a step? Usually, you know, any Boy Scouts in the house? If you're going to build a fire, do you start by filling large jars with water? Yeah. After they had done this, he said, do the same thing again. And when they were finished, he said, now do it a third time. So they did as he said, and the water ran around the altar and even filled the trench. At the usual time for offering the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. O Lord, answer me. Answer me. So that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. And immediately, the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. Get that? It burned the bull, it burned the wood, it burned the stones and the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and cried out, The Lord, He is God. Yes, the Lord is God. 
And Elijah commanded, seize all the prophets of Baal. Don't let a single one escape. So the people seized them all, and Elijah took them down to the Kishon Valley and killed them there. As I said, the question hanging over this sermon is, what do you bring to the altar? You know, what, what do you bring to the God who already has everything? What do you bring? I mean, you bring a bull to the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. What can you bring him? But now the question hanging over this text is the one that Elijah asked in verse 21. What's his big question? How much longer? How much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? How much longer will you waver? Yeah, it's an interesting word. It's a Hebrew word. It's hard to translate. That's why the New Living Translation gives you two swipes at it. How long will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? Uh, the Hebrew word has to do with like a, something that forks, maybe a, a, a tree branch, a limb that has several different branches. It goes in different directions or a path that branches out into different directions. But this word, again, is, it's strange. It has to do with hopping or, or skipping or, or hobbling. It's, it's literally the picture of a person who comes to the fork in the road but then tries to take it. You, you know what I mean? It's like without choosing, you try to walk two paths. Uh, ancient Native American uh, saying that says, man who walk on two paths will split his pants. It, it's that idea. It's the idea that you can't walk in two directions. You can't take two paths. It, you, you will end up hobbling. So the, the idea here is it, it's the people of God, the people of Israel, they will not make a decision. They waver. They go back and forth. They hobble trying to walk two different paths. And Elijah says, enough. How long? How, how long will you go without making a decision? You've got to pick a side. Pick a side. Now, back in the 1980s, y'all listen to Papa now. Back in the 1980s at Warren Central High School, Almost every day, but if not every day, at least several times a week, we'd be in the cafeteria eating, you know, amazing Warren Central High School cafeteria cuisine, and, and somebody would stick their head in from one of the doors outside, and, and in those days at Warren Central, I don't know about these days, you could smoke, like cigarettes, because this is Kentucky, you could smoke, but only outside in the smoking area. And so somebody would pop in from out in the smoking area, stick their head in the cafeteria and yell, fight, right? Fight. And so we all knew to go to the smoking area because that's where the fights break out. Because apparently there's some connection between nicotine and aggression. I, I, don't, I don't know. But all the fights were in the, in the smoking area. So you go out and sure enough, there'd be, you know, two rednecks, you know, smoking, you know, and, and fighting, you know, <laughs> fighting each other. And so we would just go out, all the guys and some girls too, it's Warren Center, y'all. We'd go outside and, and we'd just start yelling. I mean, we're on the side, you don't get in the fight, it's just two people fighting. We'd stand back, but, but we'd, we, we, we'd get into it by just, by just shouting and we'd root for one of them. Now, who do you root for? You root for whoever seems to be winning, right? Because you don't want to be on the side of the loser, so you go out, you see whichever redneck, you know, is on top, and then you just root for him or her. If it's two redneck girls, same thing, you know, girls, you know, going. You just root for whoever seems to be on top, whoever seems to be winning. Because honestly, at the end of this thing, you don't want to have been rooting for the loser. 
I'm wondering if that isn't something like what the people of God think they're doing here. They think that they're there just to watch the showdown. They think that they've come to sort of watch Elijah take on the 450 high priests of Baal. You know, And so the people of God have just sort of come to see how this turns out. And it hasn't really ended yet. And so maybe they don't decide because they want to wait and see how this turns out. They don't want to pick the wrong side. They don't want to pick the side of the loser. But see, this is where they're mistaken. Because in this showdown, they are not on the sidelines. They are not somehow uninvolved observers. They're not spectators here. Because what is actually happening here is not happening on the altars. It's not even happening on the mountain. It's happening in their hearts. It's happening in their minds. This is about them. If you thought for a moment that this whole showdown was about the slaughtering of bulls, then you've missed the point. It's not about the slaughtering of bulls. It's about the making up of minds. The question that hangs over this text is, how long will you waver? When are you going to decide? Now, when we're talking about what we ourselves bring to the altar of God, then let me say this. The first and most important offering that you must bring the Lord is the offering of a made-up mind. The first and most important thing that you bring to the Lord, that you bring to Christ, is a made-up mind. Sooner or later... You have to decide. You have to decide. Now, a lot of people go a long, long time, and they don't really make a commitment to Christ at all. And some of you might fall into that category. I don't know your heart. But understand, you have to decide. The first and most important thing you bring this God is a made-up mind. But see, people don't like to decide like that. They like to leave their options open. It's like the people of God. They wanted to be the people of God, but they also wanted to have Baal. They wanted to have it both ways. But this was not an option. God is God. He's the only true God. He is not going to share his throne with a false God. He's not going to share the throne of your life with anybody, including you. So understand, if he's not going to be God, then then you're not going to serve him. But you need to decide. I was talking to a guy not long ago. His teenage son had gotten into a lot of trouble, a lot, a lot of trouble. And this guy was saying, you know, we've been talking a long time about getting our kids back in church. That ought to count for something. Well, to state it theologically, that's just dumb. I mean, think about it. We've been talking about getting it back in church. That ought to count for something. No, it really doesn't. just really doesn't. You know, because the fact remains, while you're talking about getting your family back in church, you weren't in church. You weren't doing it. So it doesn't matter how much talk you've done, you didn't do it. You didn't commit. You didn't decide. You just kept thinking you'd make that decision later. And a lot of us fall in that category. It's like you're going to get serious in your life with the Lord, but you're going to do that later because now you, get, you think you got bigger fish to fry. Now it's just not the right time. It's, you know, it's about the job or it's about, you know, you're kind of raising your grandkids and they, they're like wild Indians in church and you're not, you know, can't make a mind. So, you know, you just keep thinking of all these reasons why now's not the time. But I'm just telling you, sooner or later, you're going to have to decide. You've got to decide. And you're foolish in thinking that you're postponing this decision because whether you really understand it or not, not to decide 
that's still a decision. I mean, the bottom line is, if you're not following Jesus today, it doesn't matter that you think you might follow him, you know, tomorrow. It doesn't matter. If you're not following Jesus today, you're not following Jesus. You're not following him. How long do you think you can pretend? How long do you think you can just sort of hobble through? And hobbling is exactly what you're doing. I mean, in your mind, you're picturing yourself kind of like a rock star on the red carpet, but truly, spiritually, you're just hobbling. You're hobbling from one disaster to the next. You're just hobbling from one broken relationship to the next. You're just hobbling your way through life. And I'm just asking, how long do you plan on hobbling like this? How long? Because sooner or later, you've got to decide. You must decide. And Elijah steps out, stares the entire nation in the face, and says, how long will you waver? If God is God, serve him. If Baal is God, serve him. But it's time to make a choice. And can you even imagine being Elijah? I can't. I cannot. The entire population of Israel, I mean, I mean, all of the people are gathered here. All the people. And Elijah, he's one, all the people. And, and nobody's on his side. Like nobody's over there going, good preaching, Elijah, good preaching. You go, amen. No, nobody. Nobody. Nobody's encouraging him. Nobody's supporting him. It's Elijah versus the nation. But add to that 450 high priests of Baal. 450, that's more than are in this room, understand? 450, all of these guys lined up for Baal. They would cut off Elijah's head in a second. 450, high priest of Baal. And then if you know the story, on top of that, you got King Ahab. King Ahab is wicked and King Ahab is crazy. He's wicked and crazy. Add to King Ahab somebody wickeder and crazier than he is, and that would be whom? Jezebel, his wife, she is twice as wicked and four times, four times, four times meaner. Understand? She's crazy. Jezebel's crazy. And they hate Elijah. They hate him. Ahab and Jezebel, they hate him. 450 prophets of Baal, they hate him. The whole nation, it's everybody against Elijah. Now, you can say a whole lot about Elijah and his faith. It's interesting, once Jesus steps out and he's talking to his disciples and he says, who do people say that I am? And you know what the most common response was? Well, a lot of people think that you could be Elijah. I mean, Elijah was something, y'all. But the fact is, when you make up your mind to follow Jesus, you know, when, when you once and finally decide that, that, that your life is not your own, then you may have to follow Jesus into some really, really tough places. And, and Elijah finds himself in one of those tough places. You can say a lot about Elijah in this moment on Mount Carmel, but you cannot say he's safe. He is not safe. Now, on the one hand, I would say, that the safest place in the world to be is right in the middle of God's hands, right in the middle of his will. And Elijah is in the very will of God and sheltered in the arms of the Lord. I mean, I know this, but at the same time, y'all, this is dangerous. 
Elijah's one man. He steps out. Prophets of Baal have been doing their thing. And Elijah, honestly, he really is not in a safe place at all. Everybody's turned against him. But in that moment, it, it gets funny to him. And, and it's, it's kind of a great part of the story, actually. Prophets of Baal, y'all, I mean, they're all into this, 450 of them. It must have sounded like, a, you know, a, a tornado. It must have been the most awesome sound of all of these men just screaming and begging Baal to, 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 to send the fire. Now, understand a couple of things. First off, Baal is the storm god. And all of the ancient Canaanite, and we have Canaanite art, and you can Google pictures of Baal from Canaanite art history. We have those. I mean, this is all real stuff, y'all. And, and Baal was typically portrayed with a fistful of lightning bolts because he's a fertility god, so he's a god of the storm. He can make it rain. And so he's typically got lightning bolts. So honestly, this is kind of Baal's thing. If what you need is fire from heaven, Baal should be your God. I mean, he's like, that's what he does. He got a fistful of lightning bolts. So it really shouldn't have taken that much for Baal to light this thing up. This is what he does, we thought. So you got 450 prophets of Baal asking their God just to do the one thing that apparently he's supposed to be able to do all day. And they start crying, they start in the morning, and they do this for hours. I mean, hours. And it doesn't sort of fizzle. They just keep ramping it up. I mean, they just keep ramping it up. They, they start praying louder and louder and louder. And they're dancing, y'all. They're dancing around the altar. But that's part of what gets funny. Because apparently they're really, really bad dancers. I, I mean, notice what it says. They were dancing, hobbling. There's that word again. Hobbling around the altar. Now, if you ever see me dance, which you might be blessed. I, I may cut the rug one day for you. When... When, when you see me dance, I, I invite you to use all the words that come to mind. You know, words like, like, like magic and motion, you know. Use words like that or, or use, you know, like, like rhythmic awesomeness or, you know, something like that. But when describing my dancing, please don't ever use the word hobble. They're, they're hobbling. And, and truly they did. From what we know about ancient Baal worship, they had this dance they did for Baal, but it really was a dance that involved literally dragging one leg behind you. This doesn't look glorious. This doesn't look like you're having a very good time. This doesn't look like much of a dance at all. You understand? They just look ridiculous. But they don't see themselves that way. They see themselves as, as, as devoted. They see themselves as, as getting Baal's attention. And when Baal doesn't seem to listen, they ramp it up. They begin to gash themselves, cut themselves, shed their own blood for the altar. Surely that will move Baal. Again, it just gets funny to Elijah. He's like, hey, pray louder. A little bit louder. Yeah. Maybe, you're, maybe your God is on vacation. That's what he says. Maybe he's on a trip. Maybe he's away. Maybe he is relieving himself. That's the way the New Living Translation puts that. Y'all know what that means, right? You know, yeah. yeah. Maybe he's in the, he's in the can. Yeah, this is, this is Elijah. I remind you, he's not in a safe place. All these people would kill him, but at this point he can't even help it, you know? Man, surely he's a God. Surely he's going to listen a little bit louder now. Verse 29, still... There was no sound, no reply, no response. So Elijah called the people. Scripture says he repaired the altar of the Lord that had, that had fallen into ruin. How does that happen exactly? 
I mean, how does the altar of God amongst God's people, how does that just fall down? I mean, how long has it been down? And has nobody noticed and has nobody cared? Elijah rebuilds the altar. He spreads the wood. He slaughters the bull. He just steps up to pray. No dancing, no show. Just steps up and says, Lord, answer me. Answer me. And the fire falls from heaven. Answer me. He prays and fire falls. Book of James says that Elijah was as human as you are, but when he prayed, understand? And that's a, kind of the puzzling thing to me. As human as we are, which is James's way of saying his prayer was not different than your prayer. He, he didn't have some sort of like you know bat phone, you know, straight to God. He, he didn't have any direct line. It wasn't anything about Elijah. He's just like you, as human as you are. And he prayed. Fire from heaven. So I struggle with that a little bit, honestly. Uh, if he's supposed to be human like me, because I pray a lot. And are y'all with me? You pray too, right? I mean, fire from heaven. I mean, is, is that what you see? Is that what the way your prayer life is? I look at this whole story and I think, God, what? I, I, I want this. Elijah, you know, preaches and, and the scripture says all the people. At the end of this thing, all the people, all the people, all the people. They fell face down on the ground and cried out, the Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord, he is God. All the people. All the people on their faces. I mean, I, I guess Elijah's as human as I am, but now when I preach, I don't see that. I've never seen that. I mean, I'd love to see all the people. I mean, honestly, I preach every Sunday on what must be the emptiest and coldest altar on planet Earth. And I preach. What's... What's the difference? I've heard Francis Chan say that every time he gets up to speak, he prays a prayer. He says, Lord, make something happen. That's his prayer. Lord, make something happen. Make something happen that, that could only happen if you show up in your presence and your power. Make something happen. It's Francis Chan. Man, he's big stuff. Things happen when he preaches. Yeah, I have a prayer every Sunday. Every single Sunday, every time I step up to preach, every time I say, Lord, if I cannot preach your word with your power, then let me not preach. I prayed it today. I prayed every time, Lord, if I can't preach your word with your power, then let me not preach. So tell me why. When Elijah steps out, there's fire from heaven and everybody's on her face. 
been a long time since we've seen anybody on their face. Last person at Woodburn Baptist Church that fell on her face was B.J. Cummins. She was carrying a strawberry cake in the front door of the lobby. She tripped, she tripped on her own feet. She dropped the cake. She fell on her face. And, and that's the last person, and that's a true story. So what is it? What's, what's the difference between when I preach or when you and I pray and when Elijah, who's as human as we are, Well, understand, it's, it's not that God is different, and, and Elijah is as human as, as we are, but you got to understand that the situation is different, and if Elijah is different in, in, in any way, it's, he's probably different in, in this way. Again, we're talking about what you bring to God, what you bring to the altar, and I would say the second thing you have to bring is this sacrifice of your safety. You must be willing to sacrifice your safety. You know the real difference between me and Elijah? He's as human as I am, but Elijah is standing with the entire nation turned against him. He's standing alone with 450 pagan priests ready to cut off his head. He has a lunatic, crazy king and his wicked wife, both of whom would kill him on sight. You understand? When Elijah steps out, everything is at stake. This is life and death. So when Elijah steps up, understand, he has followed the Lord into a very, very difficult place, a very dangerous place. And let's just be honest, you and I tend not to do that. The difference between when Elijah preaches and when I preach, I preach in one of the safest situations in the world. I mean, honestly, right now, I'm preaching my heart out, and some of y'all are asleep. And I'm not criticizing you, I'm just pointing out, that's how cozy it is in here. That's how comfortable it is. It is so comfortable. Man, you could sleep in here. And some of you do, and you can't even stay awake, and it's all right. I'm not preaching. I'm just saying that's how it is. If we get real quiet, we'll hear babies, you know, gurgling. We got women and children and babies and people sleeping. I mean, this is the safest place in the world. And maybe that's the difference. You know, when Elijah preaches, Elijah steps out into the tough places, into the dangerous places. He steps out into the places where if God doesn't show up, understand, he could look like a fool. Or even worse, they could kill him. He'd be a dead fool. I mean, Elijah calls out on the name of the Lord in situations where if God doesn't come through, then this is the end. It's the end. I mean, life and death at stake. You and I tend not to follow God into any places where life and death are at stake. You wonder why fire doesn't fall when you pray? Well, because for the most part, you're only praying for things that would make you even more comfortable. We just ask God to bless us, to make us healthy, wealthy, and well, and to sort of pave the way for our children so they don't have to suffer either. I mean, this is just how we pray. We ask God to do things for us so that our comfortable lives can remain remain very comfortable. And that's how we pray. So the reason no fire falls is because, honestly, if fire fell right now, it would ruin this service. For some of you, it would wake you up. It would disturb our comfort. If fire fell, all of a sudden, we would have to do something with this strange holy fire burning in our midst. And honestly, we're so accustomed to not having that, we wouldn't know what to do if it fell. We have to be willing to sacrifice our safety, willing to sacrifice our comfort. See, when you make this decision to follow the Lord, you don't get to say under what situations you're willing to follow him. In other words, when you decide that your life belongs to him, then he commands you and he tells you where to go. So when he tells you to go, you go. 
You don't get to have a vote in it. You've already given that up. You've surrendered your life to him. So if he asks you to go to a very scary place to do something that's out of your comfort zone, you do that. You don't get to tell him no. You can't ever tell him no. You understand? If you're telling him no, you're not following him. It doesn't work that way. You can't have it both ways. You can't walk two paths. And if you're going to follow him, he will take you into difficult places. He will take you into tough places. You might as well be willing to give up your safety. But we don't. Be honest. You won't. You're not going to do anything for the Lord that might embarrass you. You're not going to do anything for the Lord where you don't feel like there's a 100% chance of success. You're not going to do anything for the Lord if it might you know, hurt you at work or make you lose some friends. You're not going to do anything for the Lord if it means you've got to change your, you know, your, the, the way you date and hook up. I mean, you, you sort of, you know, you want to have it both ways. No. How much longer will you waver hobbling between two opinions? Elijah says, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. And all the people are completely silent. Silent is kind of the easy, easiest thing in the world to be. It's the one thing Elijah refuses to be. That's what's amazing about it entire nation that knows everything about God that Elijah knows. They know what he knows, but they simply will not not stand where he stands. You understand what I'm saying? It's, It's just this amazing way that Elijah stands up and just speaks with courage, with boldness. In a situation where honestly could get him killed. I mean, he, he may not live to the end of this service. may not live to the end of any of this. 450 high priests of Baal that would cut his head off in a moment. Crazy kings, crazy wife. I mean, you get this? An entire nation. One man. He's one man. He's one man who steps out and says, the Lord is God. The, the Lord is God. If, if, if he's God, you must follow him. One one man. And I guess if we're thinking about what it is we can bring this God who already has everything, then maybe understand your witness. Your witness is the sacrifice that you bring him. Your witness, your willingness, first off, to sacrifice your right to remain silent. You just want to remain silent. That's why you come to church and then you go to work or school tomorrow. But at work or school, you'll never say Jesus' name to anybody. If they ask you, what would you do over the weekend? You said, oh, you know, Saturday was a nice day. Yesterday, you know, I took a nap. You tend not to tell anybody what the Lord means to you. I mean, you know what the Lord has done for you, and you know that you owe your life to him. But still, when the moment comes, you're silent. You will not say his name. You don't really want to say his name. You remain silent. And this is what you must sacrifice. You must sacrifice your right to remain silent. I mean, you could do this, but not if you're going to follow him, but because silence really is not an option. I mean, he gives us this great commission to go into all the world and preach. That includes you. 
And all the world means the places where you go. I mean, you go where you go, and you're the only person who goes the places you go, the only person that stands where you stand. If you remain silent, you understand, while you're silent, people die and go to hell. While you're silent, the people that you see, the people that you know, the people that are depending upon your witness that you don't give. Do you understand? You must sacrifice your right to remain silent. You must be willing to offer him your witness. You offer him your witness. It's, it's a sacrifice. It's the offering. It's what you bring. This willingness to stand for him. Elijah stands for him. In the most difficult, dangerous situation ever, he stands there. If it costs him his life, at least he'll die standing for the truth, standing for the one true God. I mean, wouldn't you rather, wouldn't you rather be with the Lord, in the Lord's will, preaching his word and die that way than to be one of the countless number of people sitting there silently watching it happen? Pay attention to the story, though. Elijah's very successful these days, very successful. I mean, fire from heaven, That's good. All the people, an entire nation in one day, on their faces, coming back to the one true God. The one true God. Yes, God is the one true God. Yes, he's the one true God. I mean, Elijah asked for that, right? He said, if he's God, you got to serve him. And now, boom, they're all on their faces. Fire from heaven. It even burned up the stones. That's awesome. But at the end of this, nobody's talking about Elijah. You see that? Nobody's saying, man, what was his name? We need to have him out to our church to preach revival first. Man, he was up, you know, that fire. Did you see him call fire from heaven? Nobody's talking about Elijah. Nobody. At the end of this, everybody's saying, the Lord is God. The Lord is the one true God. Nobody's talking about Elijah. Very successful. Nobody's talking about him. And when it's over, and when this is over, There is still a wicked, lunatic king and his wife who were bent on killing him. And honestly, when this is all over, Elijah doesn't have a friend in the world. Because it's not about Elijah. It's not going to be about you either. It's not going to be about you. When you begin to worship and serve this God, understand, you're going to disappear into his glory and nobody's going to be saying your name. And you may still have a lot of enemies and you still may be in a lot of danger. Because this isn't about you. You're going to have to be okay with that. It's not going to be about you. But, but what if in, in uh, surrendering to this God, what if you lost everything? What if it cost you everything? What if it cost you your life? It goes back to the question hanging over the sermon. What do you bring him? 
the God who has everything, the God who already gives himself for the sake of saving us. I mean, the ultimate sacrifice doesn't come from our side of the altar. You got to bring him a made-up mind, that's for sure. You got to decide you want him. Not that you believe in him, but that you want him. You want his way with your life. I mean, you've got to surrender that. It's a made-up mind, and this is the one thing that most of you just simply will not bring him. A made-up mind. And, and you're going to have to give up the idea that you get to be comfortable in this. You've got to sacrifice your safety. It's not about you just take his name, then you live your life the way you want. No, you, 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 you give it up. You certainly give your witness because if you're going to live for him, then your only purpose would be to help others find him as well. You can't be silent. I guess in the process of this, you find out that when uh, you're trying to figure out what to bring the God who already has everything, that the only thing that you could possibly give him be everything. You give him everything. Because anything less than everything is nothing. You give him everything. Pray with me. Answer me. Oh God, answer me. Answer me. Oh God, answer me. Let your holy fire fall from heaven and consume us. Oh God, answer me. Let let a ferocious wind of your spirit blow through this place, Lord God. Answer me. Send a fire that would melt our hearts of stone. Oh, God, answer. Oh, God, I pray that you would move hearts and minds that simply refuse, refuse, refuse to make a decision. Oh, God, I pray that today would be the day, Lord, how long answer us, oh, God. Oh, God, would you show up with such presence, with such power, Lord, that we, that we, that we would be on our faces before you. Oh, God, flatten us with your holiness, with your greatness. God, forgive us because we, we try to have it both ways. We, we say that we want to follow you, but mostly, Lord, we just want to go the places we want to go, and we want you to bless us in that. We go in front of us and go behind us, Lord, but please, Lord, please, no matter what, don't let us be uncomfortable. Don't let us be embarrassed. Don't let us in any way be challenged or stretched. 
Lord, we'll follow you, Lord, but we just choose never to follow you into any difficult places, God. So in that sense, we never follow you. Help us, Lord, to recognize that, that not to decide is to decide. Help us to recognize, Lord, that if we assume that we get to still have a say in this matter, Lord, then you are not our Lord. You are not commanding our lives if we still think that we're in charge. Oh, God, answer me. Answer me. Oh, God, if there's only going to be one voice, if there's only one voice in this entire world, Lord, one voice that will still call it your name, Lord, then... I'll be the one. Lord, let, let, us, let us be those voices. Lord, let us be the ones who stand. Lord, when nobody else will stand, let us be the ones who speak. When nobody else will speak, Lord, let us be the ones who will follow you wherever you lead. And speak, Lord, wherever you ask us to speak, Lord. And if we lose everything for the sake of your name, Lord, then we know that in losing everything we have gained, gained eternal Life, And in the end, Lord, we have you. Whatever we bring, Lord, whatever we could give you, Lord, whatever we could lose, it's lost in the priceless worth of simply knowing and having you. Oh, Jesus, you are everything. So we bring everything. Lay it at your feet. We pray these things in your precious name, Jesus.